This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. There are a lot of biblical quotes that have become common cultural expressions. One of the more famous of these is, Judge not, lest you be judged. Now that's not necessarily incorrect or even bad advice. If you're the kind of person that sits in judgment on everyone and everything around you, you should expect the same in return. But there's much more to this phrase. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 7. This is where we get that famous judgment quote, but today we'll learn the full context and meaning of what Jesus had in mind then and has in mind for us in the present day as well. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So I invite you to read with me chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 1 through 6. And Jesus says this, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will also be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces." So church, here it is, Jesus' guidelines on how subjects of the kingdom of heaven should confront one another. And that's what he's talking about here. So there's a wrong way to do it, and there is the right way to do it. We're going to look at the wrong way first because that's what Jesus does. Verses 1 through 5, he points out the danger of the human standard. Now, notice with me here, church, that Jesus returns to the topic of relationships. Specifically here, he points out the flaw of the human way of dealing with interpersonal conflict. So he outlines for us here the danger of this system. He gives us the instruction, the explanation, and the correction concerning the human system. Let's go through them. Verse 1, he gives us the instruction. He begins his teaching with a straightforward command, which can also be translated, stop judging. Same idea of chapter 6, verse 25, that says, stop worrying. And he says this because many of his listeners here followed the pharisaical method of confrontation. Motivated by pride and self-righteousness and far from being quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, they preferred to rush to judgment. And this is what Jesus says is the problem. He's not instructing the people here to neglect pointing out sinful behavior in a fellow believer because we've already determined that he wants us to do that. He just says, do it the right way. And here, let me give you three reasons from the immediate context here to demonstrate that Jesus is not saying you should never judge. Instead, he's talking about a specific kind of judgment. Let me point out to you three reasons. Look at verse 5 again, and you want to circle the word hypocrites. Jesus, in calling his listeners hypocrites, makes a judgment call. So he would be the most hypocrite of all if he tells his people to not do something that he himself is doing. So obviously, he's not saying don't ever make a judgment call. But you say, wait a minute, Pastor. Jesus is God. He is allowed to judge. But we are not. Well, look at verse 6 again. He's instructing his audience to identify who the dogs and the swine are. That involves a judgment call. 
Also, if you look at verse 6, he's instructing his listeners to identify what is holy. That involves, church, a judgment call to determine what is unholy. So that's in the immediate context of what he's saying. Now, if we move outside of the immediate context here, look at what Jesus says in chapter 18 of the book of Matthew. He outlines the process we know as church discipline, which involves appropriate judgment calls. It says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That involves a lot of judgment calls, church, the right way. Now, if you go to the broader context of the New Testament, this is what Jesus says, for example, in John 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance. But judge with the righteous judgment. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 verse 20, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So church, very clearly here, there's a specific type of judgment or or judging that we are to refrain from that Jesus is talking about here. But before we identify it, Let's just summarize what Jesus teaches here. According to Scripture, confronting sinful behavior in one another is a healthy thing to do, despite what the culture tells us, that this is not loving, or this is certainly not popular, but is necessary for mutual growth, if done biblically. So therefore, church, we at Grace Baptist Church love the Word of God too much to reject the biblical way of doing things. We will never default to our human way of doing things. And here's our goal in these confrontations. We've done a few. They're not fun. But here's our goal in doing these things. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That's our goal, church, in doing these things. We are to do it the proper way. And here's our rationale. Straight out of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So here's our goal and our rationale for doing confrontation in the right way. Brotherly confrontation with a spirit of gentleness, humility, looking out for ourselves to make sure that we are not being hypocrites. And that's the point. So therefore, what should we expect then as members of a Bible-believing, Scripture-honoring, truth-loving church? No one, including the pastor and the elders, is above loving, biblical, Christ-like correction. However, Jesus warns, If you reject the divine standard of confrontation, you are subject, you are at risk of having that standard, the human standard applied to you. And that's what he says in verse 2 here. So he gives the instruction in verse 1. Here is the explanation in verse 2. And I want you to see something here very interesting in in verse 2. Matthew includes the Greek word used for verdict or sentencing, which sheds light on both the arrogance of the Pharisaical system and on the kind of judgment that Christ condemns here. And what he is talking about, what Christ is talking about is, is don't sentence anyone on spiritual matters because that is premature. Don't render verdict on someone's motive until you have all of the facts. And he gives the perfect example of that. You know the story when the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. They said this to him, Teacher, the law of Moses commends us to stone her. What do you say? 
And here came the, the famous answer that we all love that dismantled that system of self-righteousness. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. That's John 8 verse 7. Then he addressed her. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. So church, clearly here, God does not allow us to judge anything or anyone if our heart is self-righteous, vindictive, and proud. Because he confronts that, no pun intended here. Instead, we are to pursue confrontation biblically. We apply his standard. And we must be careful not to be hypocrites ourselves because our tendency is to bypass the divine standard and apply the human standard when we are the accuser. But then when we are the accused, we cry out mercy or grace to me and justice to you. So Jesus says, be careful that you are not being a hypocrite yourself. Because, friends, if you function by the human standard of confrontation like this, sooner or later, the court of human wisdom will put you on trial. And that's what Jesus warns against. There's the reason why he places what we know as the golden rule in verse 12. We'll get to that next week, but this is what he says. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. By the way, that brackets that entire section. Treat them the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. The point that he's making is this, church. Do you want to be forgiven by other people? Do you want to receive the benefit of the doubt? Do you appreciate the opportunity to clarify your motives, to clarify your intentions? Then do the same to others. Because otherwise, if you live by that standard, you are on your own, Jesus says here. Now, let's bring this closer to home a little bit more. Church, every time you criticize someone, your governor, your spouse, your parents, your pastor your professor, you render a verdict on his or her motives. And if you have not approached that person privately, you don't have the full story and you don't have all the facts. Now, I admit I have made that mistake more than once. And if you're honest, you have to admit to it too. I have been quick to judge. I have been quick to determine motives without knowing the full story and assuming the worst because that's the default approach of the human heart, Jesus says. I've learned a very valuable lesson in my years of ministry. You ready for this? This is profound. Write this down. When you're in doubt about the motivation of someone else, ask them, brother, did you mean to cause harm? Or sister, did you think this through? You'll be surprised, church, at how much these words build trust. However, if you reject the divine way of confronting sin and you opt for the more comfortable way because it's safe to do it in the comfort of your home now, you embrace the way of gossip, slander, or defamation of character, you are moving outside of God's blessing and you are on your own. In fact, Jesus says you are vulnerable to suffering the same predicament because inevitably what goes around comes around and it's going to happen to you. Now, let me show to you from other parts of Scripture here real quickly the foolishness of doing this kind of premature sentencing, premature rendering of verdict on someone's motives without having the full knowledge of things. Believers will render judgment in the millennium. That's what we'll do. Paul explains that to the Corinthians when he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And he goes on to say, Do you not know that we will judge angels? So obviously these are fallen angels. Good angels don't need to be judged. So what he's saying here is that believers in Christ, you and me, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a subject of the kingdom of heaven, one day you will be resurrected and glorified and your job, my friend, will be to render judgment on demons. But that is in the future. 
Right now, what we need to do is apply the divine standard. And let me, let me read you something else from the book of Revelation. You may remember this from the time we studied it. Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. The risen Lord writes to the church in Thyatira, and he says this, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Again, indicating that if you're a believer in Christ, you will co-rule with Christ. Glorified, redeemed sinners will enforce God's standards of justice in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we won't be biased by our own sin because we will be glorified. We will have no more sin in us. Some people will have jurisdiction over entire nations according to the scriptures. But the point is, the bottom line that Jesus says here in Matthew 7 verse 2, do not come up with your own system. Do not come up with your own method of brotherly confrontation because if you do, you will cause damage to others and to yourself. Because that system eventually is going to be applied to you. If you move away from the divine standard, you are in great danger. So that's why he says next, the correction in verses 3 through 5. So he gave the instruction, the explanation, and now the correction in verses 3 through 5. And let me point out to you again the artistic beauty of our Savior. He uses another figure of speech. For example, the splinter in the eye of a fellow believer symbolizes a sin issue that causes him to misinterpret reality. Let me repeat this. A speck in your eye or splinter in your eye symbolizes a sin problem that causes you to misread reality. For example, a man with a speck of pornography in his eye will not have the proper view of women. Likewise, someone who thinks too highly of himself has the splinter of pride in his eyes and therefore sees everybody else as inferior. And according to Jesus, proper confrontation demands self-evaluation first to make sure that we don't have a log in our own eyes. Now, what is this about a log? That's a hyperbole. That's an impossibility. Something so absurd that will cause you to drive the point home that Jesus is doing. He's driving the point home. And here's the point. Your sin, the log, not only prevents you from interpreting your brother's sin correctly, it may even be a greater problem. You see? Let me repeat this. Your sin, represented by the log, not only prevents you from interpreting your brother's sin correctly, it may even be a greater problem. In ignoring both issues, the log and the speck is not helpful. What instead he says, you are supposed to take action. You are supposed to take care of your own eye first. Take care of your own sin issue first. And by the way, all we need to do is go to Psalms 139 verses 23 and 24. Because it's easy to point out the sin in other people. Self-evaluation is a little harder. That's what the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's how you do it, church. You ask God to search your heart and say, Lord, is there anything that I'm missing here? Do I have a sin issue here that I'm ignoring before I'm able to go and talk to my brother who's living in sin? That's the point that Jesus is making here. So spiritually speaking, church, we are loggers. That's our job. Spiritually speaking, we are to remove the log from our own eyes. Then if we see a sinful pattern in our brother's eye, we approach him privately. We go privately to that sinning believer. Now church, confrontation of sin is not 
popular. Like I've been saying this, we've done this a few times here at Grace Baptist Church. It's emotionally draining. It's spiritually consuming. It's unpopular. But let me tell you something. It's the cost of following Christ closely. That's what it means to pick up the cross and follow me. In in Luke 9 verse 23 that Jesus says it requires sacrifice and self-denial and self-evaluation because before you point out the speck in your brother's eye, you need to make sure that you deal with your own sin first. And not doing anything is not what Christ is recommending here. He doesn't say just, oh, then if you are in sin, just ignore everything. No, you take care of your own sin first. Don't ignore that. Don't neglect that. And that is hard. It's not easy. It's part of following Christ closely. Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. And it takes a lot of effort, a lot of prayer. But God will enable you. Because that's what he wants you to do anyway. So there's, there's no question about the will of God. So you don't have to wonder what the will of God is. He already revealed it for us here. So all you do is say, Lord, I know what your will is. I am probably being a hypocrite because I have this sin issue in my life and I need you to humble myself so I can take care of this first. Now, on the other hand, church, following the worldly standard is the easiest thing you'll ever do. You know why? Because it's built in, in our own sinful nature. There's no effort required for us to go gossip. There's no effort required for us to go talk about somebody else behind their back. There's no effort required in order to start blogging about someone or or putting stuff on social media in the safety of your home. Why? Because that's built in in our hearts. The hard thing to do is to approach that person personally. And Jesus says very clearly again in chapter 5, let me point that out to you again, verses 21 and 22. You don't have to pull the trigger to commit murder in the heart. All you have to do is hate your brother or sister. But you say, Pastor, I don't hate anyone. I just don't, I don't want to talk with them. No, that might be a passive way of murdering someone. Unless you're actively seeking reconciliation, you are committing murder in the heart. Yeah, it's the high standard of living according to Christ. That's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that one of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not make it to the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying, unless you do this, you're excluded from heaven. Because salvation is by grace through faith. What he's saying is, You must have in your heart the desire to do this according to the biblical pattern. Because if you despise the biblical pattern, there's a good indication that perhaps you are not part of the kingdom. So after exposing the danger of the human standard, and when it comes to brotherly confrontation, Jesus explains the value of the divine standard. See, that's the contrast. The danger of the human standard contrasted with the value of the divine standard. Verse 6. And again, let me point out to you, this is another figure of speech. Because Jesus is, again, communicating truth in a metaphorical language. This is divine thoughts expressed artistically. Again, in verses 3 through 5, he used the figure of speech called hyperbole. In this one, he's using parallelism. And let me explain to you what that means. Parallelism. Because the pearl and the expression, what is good, represent the same thing. Okay? So right, pay, pay close attention here. The pearl and what is good represent the same thing. How do we know that? Go no further than the immediate context. Read verse 5 again. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That is what is holy. That is the pearl, church. And the pearl is not only holy, it's precious. The divine system is precious. It possesses incalculable worth, and it produces spiritual profit because it leads to godliness, to growth and maturity. I want you to see here something else. You might want to draw a line between those two words, the dogs and the swine. They are parallel. They represent the same thing, the same group of people. These are parallel illustrations, parallel metaphors. The the dogs and the hogs, you can call them. Okay, now let, let me explain something to you real quickly. Don't think about your yapping chihuahua. 
or your tail wagging labradoodle. That's not what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about dogs, okay? Don't think about farm animals when he's talking about swine here, okay? These animals represent people, and these are not the angry atheists, not the militant rioters, not the cultists, not the weird-looking Satanists. That's not who Jesus has in mind, I'll tell you why. Because these people are mission field. They are supposed to receive our pearls. These are people who are supposed to receive the gospel. And furthermore, they're not hypocrites because they don't pretend to be someone they are not. And remember, verse 5, Jesus says, you hypocrite. We can presume that the scribes and Pharisees were within earshot of that. He's talking about people who pretend to be believers, but they are not. Okay? The dogs and the hogs are scavenger animals. These are vicious animals who enjoy mud, who enjoy to wallow in dirt. And not only that, but they attack people. These are hounds, the dogs, hounds who attack people in the city. Again, don't think about your pet, because this is not talking about your, your droopy-eyed dog. These are hounds that attack people. Therefore, Jesus is comparing them to people, but not the unbelievers who are to receive the precious gospel. But he's talking about folks who pretend to be believers but are not because they have no interest in the divine standard. Again, look no further than the immediate context of what you're reading. In fact, let me call your attention to verse 21, and I'll demonstrate to you why he's talking about false believers, false professors of faith. Verse 21, all the way through 24 of chapter 7, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here's your answer, church. Don't yank this out of context. The pearl represents what is holy, and what is holy is revealed to us in verse 5. The dogs and the hogs represent the same kind of people. These are false believers. And his point is this, do not waste your time to try to convince a false believer to function by the divine standard of confrontation. Until or unless he comes to Jesus in repentance and faith, he cannot see the value of it. You understand that? Not only that, but they will turn against you. If you try to present to them the biblical view of confrontation, when you try to reason with them, they will turn against you and they will attack you. They will proverbially tear you to pieces because they are false believers unless or until they come to faith in Christ. Again, Jesus is using strong language here that certainly offended some of his listeners. But these are words of life because it comes from the majestic Savior, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But the point is, false believers have no interest in forgiveness. They have no interest in restoration. They prefer to wallow in the mud of self-righteousness and self-pity from where they can issue premature judgment on others. Now, the question then for us is this, how do we relate to people symbolized by the dogs and the hogs here? How do we interact with those folks? Paul helps us with that. As soon as we determine with plenty of evidence that someone is a false believer, Paul says very clearly, don't even associate with them. Let me read to you what he says. Again, I'm not the one coming up with this. This is all from Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even eat with such a one. 
Again, Paul is writing to a very troubled church in 1 Corinthians here, and he's talking specifically about the fact that the church refused to point out the sin of a brother in that church, and that guy was sleeping with his stepmom. Now, the question is then, how do we determine whether someone is a false believer? Because again, we can't rush to judgment, otherwise we're violating the precious pearl of divine wisdom here if we rush to judgment and say, well, you're a false believer, you're a false believer. You're fa-. No, we can't do that. How do we determine whether or not someone is a false believer? I'm glad you asked. Because the answer, church, is in the text. Look at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Don't remove that verse from the context. Ask for wisdom, and God will give you wisdom. Seek, and you will find. Get the facts. Understand what's going on here. Knock and it will be open to you. In other words, enter through the door of the divine standard and God will honor you. So how do we determine whether or not someone is a false believer when it comes to brotherly confrontation? Ask and it will be given to you. And if the person in question here resists church discipline all the way to step number four, which is confrontation from the church leadership, loving confrontation in the spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of humility. If that person resists this, again, let me remind you, Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, because he probably is an unbeliever, posing as a believer. Put him out of the church. Now, if he returns in brokenness and repentance, you be the first one to run towards the embrace like the father did to the prodigal son. Come back to a place of honor in my house. You are always welcome back. We always welcome a repentant sinner back to the fold. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.